Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I'm sex educator and sexual communication coach, Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey, friends. In the summer of 2019, I had the good fortune to attend Sex Geek Summer Camp. It's a five-day business intensive for professionals in various areas of human sexuality. I'll put information in the show notes for any budding sex geeks out there who might want to attend next summer, and I recommend it. In addition to basic business education, there were workshops on a number of other topics, including a particularly feisty session with Dixie De La Tour about incorporating storytelling into our work. Now, if you're not familiar with Dixie's podcast, Body Storytelling, go download it now. I mean, seriously, go download Dixie's latest episode right now. But wait to listen to it until this episode is over. As part of her presentation, Dixie introduced us to a woman named Gretchen. I'd seen Gretchen around camp the previous couple days, but we hadn't talked. But when she got up to tell her story, I swear it was like listening to my own. The parallels between our sexual histories are astonishing. Now, you might not know it from listening to me interviewing people on such a sensitive topic, but in real life, I'm actually really introverted. So it took me a day to work up the courage to approach Gretchen and tell her how much her story meant to me. It was, as they say, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Gretchen is not just my buddy. She's become one of my closest confidants. We recorded this conversation before the COVID lockdown, and we didn't know each other quite as well then as we do now. So I was hearing many of these stories for the first time along with you. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. One thing I should tell you before we get started is that there's some traffic and airplane noise in this recording. You can still hear everything, but it might be a little distracting for those of you who are listening on headphones. And now, I am so pleased to introduce Gretchen. I am really excited to welcome Gretchen, not only because she is a lovely person, but also because uh, she and I are sort of like working partners. <laughs> we spend a lot of time together every week working on our um, our businesses. And so um, it's just going to be really fun to get to talk to you about this stuff. So thanks for being with me, Gretchen. Thanks. I'm excited. Awesome. So as I start every interview, mm-hmm. um, my first question is, 
What is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Yeah, this is such a fascinating question. And of course, I went and listened to all of your podcast episodes after I agreed or asked actually to do this. Um, and the one that immediately jumped to mind and has stuck with me as I listened to different episodes is I have this really distinct memory and I'm not sure of my age. I'm not great with cal- like orienting to what age I am at different times, but I want to say I was somewhere in the like eight or nine age range, maybe. And there was a girl that I went to school with. We were good friends. We would get together frequently. And there were two times where we cuddled and the cuddling turned really arousing, like where we were kind of rubbing up against each other. And we never kissed, but we would like nuzzle each other's necks and that sort of thing, right? And I remember um, being really uh, turned on by it, and it only happened twice, hmm. and it never went any further, and we never spoke about it in between the two times or afterwards. Wow. And it just sort of, yeah. And that's my most distinct, my earliest distinct memory. Do you remember what caused that to begin? No. I mean, we were just playing. I mean, maybe we were like doing a little bit of roughhousing, like with a lot of giggling and maybe I, I'm not even sure. And I, like I said, I don't know if it was some like like somewhere between some roughhousing and into cuddling and hugging or something. But my memory is of being in the midst of it huh. more than the lead up or what came after that yeah. day each time. And it was twice that I recall. And that's so interesting that it would happen more than once, but then it just stopped and it didn't happen again. Do you have, like, was there any sense that you thought this was wrong or bad? Like, is that why it stopped, do you think? I remember wanting it to happen again. Mm -hmm. I remember every time we hung out for a while after the first time, I wanted it to happen again, but I didn't know how to make it happen. Yeah. I don't remember a lot of self-criticism shaming, but feeling like it had to be hidden. Uh-huh. Like, I, 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 I must have thought it was wrong enough that, like, we clearly weren't going to talk about it. We, it wasn't when any other friends were around. It was just the two of us. And, and then I couldn't ask for it mm. to happen. Like, it just had to kind of happen. What were you hearing in your childhood home um, or from other influences in your childhood um, about sex and in particular your sexuality? So I was born and raised Catholic. I went to Catholic schools my entire life, um, except for grad school and one year of university of undergrad. And sex was never talked about in my family. I have no memory of any conversation about sex in my, in my, with my parents, either of them that I can recall. I feel like if there had been anything, it would have stood out, but, (laughs) or maybe it was so awful that I repressed it. I don't really know. Um, But no memory of that. And I just, you know, I was born and raised Catholic. So all of the Catholic teachings around sex were just in the air. That was just part of, that was my cultural like milieu, like that's what I was around. So while I don't have 
explicit memories of people saying to me directly, sex is bad, or your sexuality is bad. It was something just was never talked about. And so therefore, I felt like it was always hidden. Like Mm -hmm. I had to whatever I might be thinking or feeling about it was in the like, only for me to know. And or when I was behind a closed door, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And were you getting any kind of sex ed at in Catholic school? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nothing in grade school. So first through eighth grade, nothing that I recall. And I went to an all girl Catholic high school that was owned and run by nuns. And a lot of the teachers were either were nuns or were former nuns. Mm. Um, But surprisingly, I remember being surprised that in my like junior year, we got um, a class, a sex ed class. And of course it was focused on like disease prevention and pregnancy prevention, but like they did the condom demo on the banana and they, to the best of my recollection, it was mostly talked about not like in shame free is maybe too strong of a phrase, but it was assumed that it's happening within a loving, committed, long-term monogamous heterosexual relationship. Sure. Right. But there weren't a lot of message. There weren't messages about homosexual sexuality being bad or sex outside of marriage being bad that I heard. Interesting. And I'm really interested that they did the condom on the banana because oh, yeah. isn't isn't birth control considered a sin? In- this is why, yeah, this is why I thought it was quite progressive. Yeah. Like, even though it's a it's a Catholic school owned and run by nuns or former nuns, they still somehow. Granted, the class itself was taught by a former nun, and I kind of wonder, looking back, like the administrators must have known the content of the class. Uh-huh. I'm presuming. That's that's why it struck me as kind of progressive for the con- like for the the time yeah. and the place and all of that. But that was it. In terms of any conversation around pleasure or communication related to sex, no, 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 none of that. <laughs> well, nobody got that. Not even in Catholic. Right. I mean, not even in non-Catholic right. school. <laughs> right. Yes. So, um, what was your relationship with your body as a teenager? Uh, so I had a really, um, I was really disconnected from my body from a young age, um, up until my early forties. Do you know what that stemmed from? I, yeah, I have a very, I know, I know exactly what it stemmed from. I, um, a couple of different things. One, so I'm the youngest of three of two older brothers and I was raised by both of my parents praising my intelligence, my capabilities, my sense of humor. And I have no memory of ever being told I was pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I had a conversation with my father years, years later, where he shared that he was deliberate about that because he wanted me to be to be raised as a strong, independent woman. And so he overcorrected, right? He thought if he yeah. phrased my, my, my appearance, it would play into the stereotype and gender roles. Mm-hmm. And so, but I was, so I never got a compliment for my appearance, only about my intelligence and all of that. And then um, when I was 11 or 12, 
uh, it's kind of, it's an emotional memory. I attended a family wedding and with like maybe six or so months before the wedding, I like, I, um, went through puberty in a big way. And all of a sudden I had, I used to be super, super skinny. Like my nickname pre-puberty was bones. I was so thin. It's like skin on bones. And then I went through puberty and all of a sudden I had hips and I had large breasts. Like I have, I never wore a training bra. I went from nothing to like a full C and then I just kept getting bigger. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, from there. And so I went from that to like a full C and some hips on an otherwise super skinny frame. But I went to this family wedding and it was probably at least six months since that side of the family, my mom's side of the family, extended family had seen me. And I'm sitting around a table with a bunch of relatives, mostly female relatives like my mom, my grandmother, my aunt, one of my female cousins, some other like extended uh, female cousins and my older uh, male cousin. He was, pro- I was, like I said, I was 11 or 12. He was probably 17 or 18. He walks up to the table to say, say hello to everyone. And he sees me and I'm standing up behind my mom's chair or like, or my grandmother's chair. I can't remember. Actually, it must have been my grandmother's because I could see my mom's face. I, he walks up to the table to say hello to everyone, sees me, kind of has this like surprised reaction on his face, looks me up and down. I have this very strong memory of him checking my body out mm-hmm. and then just says what is actually a fairly innocuous thing of like, wow, Gretchen, you've really grown up in the last, like since I last saw you, right? Like a very, what in retrospect was a really natural reaction. But and I in that instant that he looked me up and down and he responded really positive to me, I can remember feeling my body flush with pleasure and a little a little bit of embarrassment because this is all happening in front of a whole table full of people. Yeah. But otherwise, super positive, like a flood, like a warmth of pride that I got this compliment because mm-hmm. um, I never get complimented on my looks. So that right. And instantly my mom's face fell to this harsh look and she, I can't remember what she said, but she said something basically to shut him down. Mm -hmm. And what I remember feeling is shame in that Mm -hmm. moment. And what I internalized was a message that that was wrong. That, that the him way looking he, at you was that wrong? That him or? looking at me was wrong, that him reacting to me that way was wrong. Mm-hmm. And therefore, my feeling pride in that mm-hmm. and pleasure in that response from him was wrong. Mm-hmm. That my body had done something wrong. That's ultimately the message that I internalized. Yeah. And so pretty much from that point forward... Like I went through my teenage years not caring. I have no recollection of outside of this one incident in my senior year of high school. I have no memory of like I never tracked my weight. I didn't care. I played sports. Um, I cared about what my body could do for me in the day to day of like the activities I wanted to do. Um, But I had no sense of what it looked like. Mm. And I wore loose pants and baggy T-shirts during your high school and college years, were you interested in dating? I, um, I didn't date at all. I was really academically oriented and focused. 
I can remember in high school starting to think about dating, noticing, having some, like seeing people around me dating, but my closest group of girlfriends didn't date either really, or not much. When I then was in the older I got, like progressing through high school and through college, I thought more about dating and wanting to date and started yearning more for it and feeling bad that it wasn't happening, Mm -hmm. but not terribly bad yet. Because I remember thinking that'll happen eventually. Like I'm focused on my academics. I'm building, I'm going to build a career. I'm going to do like, this is then in college. I'm thinking I'm going to do Peace Corps. I'm going to do grad school. Like the dating will come. I'm not worried. I want it. It's not happening. I'm disappointed, but it'll happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And anytime I was around guys that I was attracted to, I hid it. I couldn't let anyone ever see that I was interested in someone. Yeah. And that was, yeah. What did you think would happen? If if you let someone know Uh that you were interested in them, what, what was the story you were telling yourself would happen? The story was, um, that, well, one, if they knew they would reject me mm-hmm. because it would not be reciprocated. And if others saw that happening, they would feel sorry for me. They would either feel sorry for me yeah. or they would think, who are you to like that person? Yeah. Oh my God. Right? I had virtually the same experience. <laughs> I could not let anybody know I was interested because I was certain a, that they would shame me Right. For thinking that I could be with them and that right. everyone else would shame me for thinking I could be with them. Yeah. yeah. Or I like others would pity or I would receive pity. Or pity. Yes. Like, oh, and that yeah. was almost as worse, if not worse than the thought of being shamed. Yes. Was the pity. Yes. Meanwhile, I chose, once I finally did start dating, I chose assholes because that's who I thought that I could be with. And all of my friends were like, why are you with these guys who are clearly not good enough for you? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I never really did. I mean, I never really did. I, when I got back from Peace Corps in my late twenties, I finally started, I tried the online dating thing. So you had never dated before? I had never dated. Had you kissed anybody? So what I, interestingly, um, so the first time properly kissing someone, not like, ooh, this is the boy that I'm like going out with in grade school and I peck on the cheek or something, right? But a proper kiss, I was 16 and I was doing a summer academic program in the Dominican Republic. I was a Dominican. And uh, the Dominican culture is a highly sexualized, flirtatious culture. And that's also where I did Peace Corps. And I, for the first time, flirted outright with boys. And that was that summer when I was 16 in the DR. And that was the first, and I, the um, a guy that I had my first like proper kisses with. And, um, and then I came back. Nothing until I was back in the DR for Peace Corps. Interesting. So it's like you couldn't yeah. do it when you were home in your sort of native culture, but right. you, when you were far away, away from everyone who knew you, away from all the expectations. And in a culture that um, is just, it's a highly sexualized culture. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly flirtatious. Women own like flaunt their bodies um, and anyone like, and there's the, 
the things that we typically cared about, like height between a man and a woman, Dominican men could give a rat's ass if the woman he was dancing with. In fact, he would love the woman he was dancing with to be several inches taller because huh. it's more gorgeousness, like, right? Like pride yeah. in that. Uh, a woman who here would be told to hide their bodies because they carry X amount of weight or their hips are this size or have this much belly or whatever. No, no, no. They're wearing skin tight clothes showing off their bodies. So what you're saying is we should all go to the Dominican Republic and spend I some mean, time watching them. Know, there's a flip side to it that is not so great. And I, I could talk about that for a while. But for me, it was and that's where I like literally up until that point until I went to Peace Corps when I was 27. I was hiding my body. I wore jeans and loose t shirts, or baggy sweatshirts and sweaters. Yeah. And then five months, four months, three months, not even that long, I would say into Peace Corps. And I stood out because I dressed that way. <laughs> right. Like, and it like, and I have different, like a lot of different stories of it being called to my attention by my Dominican counterparts or host families yeah, um, and kind of getting made fun of in a really fun, like, compa- like not cruel way or anything, but just there was some joking around it. And eventually, and most of the volunteer women did this, we started buying local clothes. And so I started showing off my body oh, for the yeah. first time ever. Um, and I lost a lot of weight when I first moved there, too. Um, and, yeah, I think because that culture is so different, it's not just leaving my home culture, mm-hmm. but going to one that it that was polar opposite in certain respects around yeah. this stuff. Um, yeah. And so, and that's where I also had my first sexual experience. And so, was, how did that yeah. come about? Um. There was a volunteer in my group that I flirted with um, whenever we would be in the same place. Um, we didn't act on it for the longest time because he had a Dominican girlfriend. And so he just flirted with me and we flirted pretty outrageously. Um, How did that feel having not done that before? Um, well, first, it took me a while to realize that's what was happening. Uh That that's what we were doing was flirting, right? I just thought I was, I like to argue. I'm a natural born arguer (laughs) Um, and I have a lot of opinions. And at that age, I had no hesitation in spouting all of my opinions, (laughs) like no reflection that maybe they're ill-informed, maybe they're half-assed for, like maybe they're wrong, like none of that, that I now have in my like mid-40s, but in my late 20s, I was right about everything. (laughs) And I think that really turned him on, right? That I And I would get in his face. I mean, he was kind of a jackass and he would spout off on these different things and I would just come at him straight on and tell him why he was wrong and make all these arguments. And so I think that to me, that's what I was doing. And then it slowly morphed into more typical flirting. And it took me a while to catch on that that's what was happening. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think, it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. 
Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There's no single answer that's right for everyone. So I'm going to help you discover what's right for you and we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM or consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling intimate life and together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free, no obligation discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. We had a conversation one night at a bar where we weren't clearly going to hook up that night because he was still with his girlfriend but he asked me point blank and no one ever had he asked me if I was if you know he asked me if I'd ever been in love and I said no I've never never been in love and just sort of matter of factly because I hadn't uh, I'd had crushes but I always knew that was not sure I wasn't falling in love it was just a crush and he's like huh he kind of kind of pulled him up he's like so well you've had sex right and I just looked at it up and I remember pausing and my heart kind of beating strongly. And I was like, I'm not going to lie about it. I'm embarrassed because at this point I'm 27 and I've never had sex and I'm kind of, and I'm humiliated by this, but I'm like, yeah. I'm not going to lie. And this all sort of flashed in my brain. I'm like, no, actually I've never had sex. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Oh, like, huh? Wow. Oh, I, and I'm like, let me clarify something. Cause your first question leads me to think you have an assumption. I don't equate sex and love. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not holding out for my true one true love to have sex. I'm not saving my virginity. It just hasn't happened. Like that's not the story yeah. in my head. Yeah. My story is it hasn't happened. I want it to happen. I'm not looking for my true love. In fact, I'm not looking for that at all. I'm focused on my career. I'm focused on what I'm going to do, be- do when I go back home. I want to have sex and I want to have my life. Right. Yeah. Cause it was clear in his reaction that for him, he was bought into that common cultural myth around love and sex. Yeah, sure. Especially for women. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but then eventually months later, and he kind of cooled down, things kind of cooled down. Like he was less flirtatious with me after that. It was clear he was thrown by this, the fact that I was a virgin. I was in the DR for 1999 New Year's, the millennial New Year. And um, we had sex that night. We were in the same party space and alcohol was involved. And yeah, we had sex. 
how was the actual event? Was it? Oh, you mean this actual the sex? Yeah. How was it? I mean, it was. It wasn't great. I mean, we were drunk. <laughs> and we were drunk and it was my first time. So it was not good. Um, and in fact, what's interesting is I can't, and this is, I don't know if I've ever told anyone this story in this detail. I'm trying to remember maybe one of my closest girlfriends immediately after the fact, but probably not all of it because I'm not even sure. Like he definitely fucked me in the ass without my consent. Oh, dude. Daring it. And it was so like, I, it was so ridiculous. It's embarrassing, but I'll tell the story anyway, because what the hell? Um, I remember it happening and thinking, wait a minute, is that right? That doesn't feel right. <laughs> but is that, but maybe that's how it feels like not being sure. And afterwards realizing like, I don't know if he ever actually fucked me in my pussy. Really? Yeah. Like that's Damn. how messed up between never having experienced it. Probably not really being fully physiologically aroused either. Yeah. Right. And it, and being drunk. Right. right? And it not late take like it wasn't a long session. <laughs> no <laughs> sense of how short it was, but it was not a long time. Yeah. Either. Um, yeah. I just and I remember at the time being like conf- a little uncertain as to exactly where his penis was. That I kind of somewhat suspecting in the moment that it wasn't in my in my pussy, but not being 100% certain. And then the next morning I woke up and my ass hurt. I was like, yep. And so I found him later that day. And I was like, dude, what the hell? You fucked me in my ass. That is not cool. It really hurts now. And he was clearly like he gave. I don't know if I believe him. He gave the oh, it was an accident. I didn't know that's what I was doing. (laughs) And the thing is, we were both pretty drunk, so it could be. But it's also a really lame excuse. That sounds pretty shady to me. (laughs) It's pretty shady. It's a very shady excuse. And there was a lot of alcohol. And yeah. And it could have been there was a lot of alcohol, so it was a great opportunity for him. No idea. Right. But he seemed embarrassed when I confronted him. Yeah, he seemed embarrassed when I confronted him. And yeah, and that was it. I was like, you never do that. Like, I didn't give <laughs> What the fuck? Like, God. I'm walking so, around. I can barely sit down. I'm... Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> like, seriously, I remember... Yeah, so that was I was my first. I was also a later... Uh, Virginaries, or uh-huh. um, <laughs> I didn't have sex for the first time till I was twenty-five, uh-huh. and um, and I had spent all of those years like imagining what it was going to feel like mm. and fantasizing about it. And the first time it happened, it fucking hurt. And oh. like, I, and uh, similar to you, I don't think I was actually turned on. There, like, there yeah. were lots of problems with right. it. Um, but I think about how, um, how when I wasn't fully prepared and lubricated, yeah, being penetrated in the pussy hurt, let alone not being yeah. fully turned on and properly lubricated and being penetrated in the Anally, ass. Yeah. Dear God. Yeah. Is- it, yeah uncool on so many levels it was uncomfortable what i remember is that it was uncomfortable slightly painful but uncomfortable at the moment but you remember like i was expecting discomfort or even pain yeah first times that's what you expect 
And what an awful cultural myth to begin with. Like right. we tell girls it's going to hurt. So I was expecting that's yeah. Right. Totally. When if only we told them if you get turned on enough, well, it doesn't have to it hurt. It doesn't have like to that. hurt yes. and yes. like that's what you should be aiming for. But what a f- yeah. Well, we're pretty fucked up. But um <laughs> So I was expecting the discomfort, even some pain. So that wasn't, and it wasn't like searing pain or, and I was also, again, drunk. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> my body could probably, like, was probably desensitized more than it would have been had I not been as drunk as I was. Yeah. Wow. And then the next day I was like, oh no, I know exactly where that dick was. And it was not where I was expecting it. <laughs> this really is uncomfortable and painful. Yeah. <laughs> So did that leave you ha- now having had sex, mm-hmm. sort of, having had penetration sure. sense, yes. <laughs> of some type um, for the first time, did that leave you wanting more or did that leave you thinking, eh, I could take it or leave it? Oh, no, I always wanted more uh-huh. because I wasn't, I wasn't expecting the first time to be great. Again, part of our maybe cultural conditioning. Yeah. But it, I was also approaching it from a more utilitarian perspective at that point. So when it finally happened, I was 27 and I wanted to have that first experience over. And I knew I wanted more sex in my life. I Mm -hmm. wanted relationships in my life. I wanted men in my life. That one experience wasn't going to influence me significantly one way or another. So it's sort of a means to an end of, I just want the first time over. I want the first time over and I want, yeah, I want more. Yeah. Because it's got to get better. It's going to get better. I get so many messages from listeners saying, thank you for the show. I've listened to the whole back catalog and it's helped me completely transform my sex life. Are you one of those people? If so, I'd love to have your support so I can keep growing this show and bringing a new vision of sexuality to the world. If you haven't done it yet, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. I know the podcast industry does not make reviewing a show easy. So go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And it should lead you through the process of posting a review. I'd love to get 100 reviews by the end of the year, and I could use your help. And if you have the financial resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be so grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. And I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are now either illegal or heavily legislated. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Good Girls Talk About Sex. And speaking of Patreon, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free for everyone to listen to. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access it. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Good Girls Talk About Sex to start listening. 
I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a contributor, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. It was pleasurable in that I wanted to be having that affection, that touch. I wanted that intimacy. And mm-hmm. so it, and I was, year, and at this point, the older I get, the more I'm yearning for this mm-hmm. in my life, what I don't have, yeah. the more I struggle, the periods of time when I'm depressed about it lengthen. Mm-hmm. They come more frequently, the episodes last longer. And so by the time I'm in Portland, and I'm in my mid 30s, I am starting to worry it's never going to happen. For the longest time through my teenage years and college, before getting to Peace Corps, I wanted it, but I wasn't worried, right? And then the longer it goes on, and now I'm in the, I mean, I'm in Portland, I'm in my 30s, and now I'm feeling more desperate, and the yearning is more frequent, and it's super painful. But I'm convinced As I think about it, I'm convinced that I am ugly and unattractive and undesirable, that that's Mm -hmm. why it doesn't happen. And the few times it has, the few times when people have expressed interest in me, those were anomalies. They were anomalous events. They're outliers. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of my experience was all evidence pointing to the fact that I wasn't going to have this. Yeah. 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 And so having any experience was pleasurable at that point. Mm -hmm. The sex itself was actually bad. Mm. Like it was not good sex. Mm -hmm. But I also, I like, I didn't know how to do anything and I felt self-conscious. I was generally non-reactive. I hardly did anything. So like I was bad at it. I don't know if they were any good, but I was certainly bad. So I wasn't helping in the dynamic. (laughs) And, it, and the older I got, the more shame and I had around my lack of experience, mm-hmm. the more embarrassed I was. So the two times were like, I mean, I never orgasmed with anyone, mm. but I also was happy to be touched. Were you regularly orgasming with yourself? Yeah. So you knew what an orgasm felt like? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So because you and I have talked a lot. I mean, we haven't had any of these conversations before. This is fascinating. Um, (laughs) But I do know about you that at this point, you went into talk therapy. And um, we're like, WTF, like, (laughs) what's wrong with me? It took me a long time to convince myself it was okay Mm -hmm. to go to therapy. And then when I went, it took me years to actually admit what I really wanted to work on. Mm. There was a lot of I mean, there's other stuff that that would come up. But what I secretly wanted to work on was this. What I wanted for myself was an intimate relationship, but I couldn't admit that. I could mm-hmm. barely admit it to myself, much less to a therapist. Maybe within a couple of year, year or so-ish, I was able to finally articulate out loud to my therapist what I absolutely, what I really wanted. Mm-hmm. Um. And then we spent several years trying to help me get there. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember this one session with my current therapist where, and he's a, he's a visual guy. He's got a whiteboard. Like he doesn't take notes except occasionally he'll like draw or write on the whiteboard and then take a photo. 
and uh-huh. share it with you. And that's the notes from his session. Uh-huh. It's the whiteboard. Um, and so he, we were talking and he popped, he gets really energetic. He pops up. He's like, do you mind if I draw on the whiteboard? Like, yeah, sure. Whatever. Knock yourself out. And he's like, all right. And he draws like a stick figure woman. He's like, how, who are you today? Who's Gretchen today? And I describe myself and he writes the things that I write, that I say, like I'm, I'm uh, alone. I, um, I am bad at dating. I feel unattractive. I don't think anyone wants me. It's ever going to want me, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, all right, who then oh, across the board, he draws another stick figure woman. He's like, and who do you want to be? And I describe, you know, I want to be seen as attractive. I want maybe even people to find me sexy. I mean, I think I even said that, like, I want to date. I want to find someone to be emotionally and sexually intimate with altogether. He's like, all right, so what is it going to take to get you from here to there? And I'm like, it's impossible. He's like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, there's a wall. And I'm not a visual person. I'm normally, this kind of thing normally doesn't resonate with me at all. Mm -hmm. But this one did. I saw it clear as day. Like there's a wall. So he starts to draw a wall. I'm like, yeah, you got to go higher. It's a, it's a really fucking high wall. It goes high. He's like, and, and he kind of like stops right where the feet are. I'm like, no, no. And it goes deep, deep into the earth. Mm. Like you're not going to, we're not going to dig under the wall. It's, it's endlessly deep. And, and I'm like, and it's slick like marble. Mm. There are no, there's nothing to get a foothold on. And it's thick. It's a really thick wall. That's like, because it felt in that moment and what sticks with me and it's still emotional is it felt insurmountable. Yeah. Yeah. It was devastating for me. It felt like I would never get to what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. How did you move from that visualization, from that session mm-hmm. to something that actually helped you to take down the wall? One of the things I did was take a three-week trip in early 2016 to Tulum, Mexico. And my therapist, when talking about this trip, um, he's like, I want to ask you, I want to give you a goal for the trip a small goal. He's like, I would love if you went on this trip and gave yourself the opportunity to flirt with someone, like flirt with someone and give yourself the opportunity for a fun encounter. Whether or not it happens, it doesn't matter if anything happens. What matters is that you are open to it and you're looking around. Just try it. And so I did. And the first couple weeks of the trip, I occasionally got into somewhat of a depressive state because I struggled with doing it. And then my second or third to last night, I had a really unexpected one night stand with my kayaking guide. I wasn't attracted to him at all, but I didn't care because at this point it had been eight years at least Uh since the Portland dude experience. Um, And nothing in between, not even a hope of anything in between. So I didn't care that I wasn't attracted to him, but I was back at his place and he did like, and he's Mayan. 
uh, and really like proud of his culture. And um, he did a Mayan sound healing on me because I was super mm. sore from the kayaking trip, which was lovely. And it was a, it was a gorgeous experience. And then afterwards, as I was coming out of it in a, a super relaxed state, he had like turned down lights and lit candles and then prepared his bed. And he invited me back to give me a massage. And I just remember like, okay, sure. Why not? Whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, this clearly can't be going there because there's no sexual attraction. Like there's no chemistry. There's uh-huh. no flirtation. We're talking and chatting, but there's no flirtation. Lays me on his bed. And he proceeds to give me a really lovely massage that very slowly gets more and more erotic. And I like throughout it, I remember thinking, I don't like, I'd I'd actually am not attracted to him, but I don't care because he's (laughs) touching my body. And it had been so the hardest thing about having no ability to date or get sex. I craved touch. And so I like, he went, like, he gave me a super deep massage and then it went erotic and then he kept massaging in really fun areas and ways. And then it just slowly, like slowly clothes were coming off in different degrees. <laughs> and, and then he spent like, I don't know, like, I don't know how long he spent massaging my body, but it was a long time getting, and then more and more arousing touch. And then he spent a long time doing some really yummy, fun things to my pussy and my ass that I had fantasized about. Huh but had never experienced. And it was, it was all pleasurable. Uh But I remember as the evening progressed and as he kept, and I was basically like his plaything in the (laughs) watch for the most part. And I was unresponsive and I laid there. And so I was laying there and my brain was going cycling through a series of different thoughts. One was, I mean, one was just experiencing the pleasure and enjoying it. Then I would clue into the fact that it wasn't getting close to orgasm and I knew it wasn't going to and kind of having negative thoughts about myself around that, realizing I was being completely silent and unmoving and that that was weird. Mm -hmm. And I would think about trying to move and respond, but I would feel really Mm self-conscious and I would pull myself back in and much less I couldn't make a sound. Sounds Mm -hmm. were way too scary to make. Mm-hmm. And then feeling bad about that. And so that was sort of this progression of like cycling of like, oh, I mean, but I'm thinking too much. Get focus on what he's doing. Like focus on this, what he's doing. Of course I'm not going to worry guys. I'm thinking too much. And then yeah. like cycling around all of that. Yeah. Um, and eventually he fucked me and that happened several times. And then the second two times over the course of the night, there was no foreplay at all. He just sort of rolled over, put on a condom and fucked me. And I remember like craving any form of touch though. Mm. Like I didn't care. I wanted more, but I couldn't ask for more because I couldn't say a thing. Yeah. And then there's at one point a really bad humiliating blowjob in there, short lived. (laughs) And I felt awful and completely embarrassed. And then stay the night. He, we had tea the next morning he took me back to my hotel room or my the apartment I was renting. And I walked into my apartment, closed the door and immediately started crying. Mm. Because I felt at that point, while I was laying there with him, I had decided I was frigid because I'd never orgasmed and I didn't know how to respond. Like You'd I was never orgasmed with another person with another person. But yeah. in my head like that's I'd forgotten. Mm-hmm. Right. I wasn't sure. thinking about self pleasuring. 
And I decided I was defective and broken while I laid there. Mm -hmm. And I pushed it aside to not have the breakdown with him. Mm -hmm. I shoved it down as far as I could. And then when I got back to my apartment, it all came out. Yeah. And I cried for I don't know how long. And I mean, one of the things I did successfully deal with in therapy was letting myself feel my emotions. Mm -hmm. I was raised to suppress them. That if it wasn't a happy emotion, anger occasionally would be okay to show, but anything else had to be hidden Mm -hmm. and dealt with before you were seen again. Mm -hmm. So like I did finally learn to actually feel my feelings. I didn't for the long, know how to do that and to let myself feel them. So like that was coming to fruition (laughs) while I was in this room in Tulum. Uh, And I just cried and cried and cried. And then I was like, and then I thought about the night and the thoughts that went through my head. And the first thing was realizing, first of all, the term frigid, what the fuck does it actually mean? <laughs> it's a pejorative latch to la- only mentioned, uh, like describing women. Right. Um, and it means nothing. And I give myself orgasms on a regular basis. So my body functions. Mm-hmm. My body is functioning appropriately, but I'm sexually dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Like I want this and I can't get it and I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I had Wi-Fi in my phone. So I, on a whim, typed into the Google search engine, female failure to orgasm. And like, I spent the day, like, it's a gorgeous day in Tulum. It's one of my favorite areas of the world. And that's what I did for one of my, my second to last day <laughs> in Tulum was sit in my hotel and research mm-hmm. because that search term led me down this whole path of articles that had cross links and mentioned other things. And before I knew it, I had, I don't know how many different windows open on my, my search engine Mm -hmm. (laughs) and on my phone researching all this stuff. And I left Tulum a couple days later, knowing and what the research, what that reading taught me was that there are other paths to sexual healing than just talk therapy. Yeah. And I had no idea before this that there were other options. So ultimately, what was the therapy modality that you chose? In the end, I chose to work with a tantric practitioner. Can you talk a little bit about what the work was that you actually did with him? Yeah, so it was erotic body work, basically. And one of the first things he made sure I was clear on when I did my first consult, my my free consult with him was that technically the work he did was illegal. Mm. It's not an area of, of work that the, you know, that the law really cares about. They're not trying to crack down on it, but technically it is. Um, And from the very first session, he touched my, my erot, like erogenous zones. He touched my breasts. He touched my pussy. Um, Yeah. And what it's about is like the first things I worked on with him was um, staying present in my body and not going down rabbit holes in my brain Mm -hmm. and shelf self recrimination and all of that. And so a good portion of that first session was him giving me a massage that slowly became more erotic and he would track me and bring me back to my body and my breath. How would he do that? He would see he's incredible. One, he's incredibly intuitive and limbically oriented. So he could say he could sense even when I was face down, but it was easier when I was face up because he could see like micro expression changes mm-hmm. when I was face up. But even when I was face down, 
he could sense sometimes when my brain would go somewhere else because I, I think like, I don't know if he's seen like body slightly tensing or it's just a limbic kind of intuitive uh-huh. feel that he has. Uh, and he would be like, each time he would see it happen, he'd be like, come back to your breath huh. or come back to the sensation, come back to the pleasure. Uh-huh. And his, his other message at the same time, which was incredibly important, which is, and it's okay that your brain wonders. Uh-huh. That's what brains are meant to do. Like, the entire work with him was both like body oriented so that literally like new pathways were carved in my brain. So like, as I learned how to be present, it wasn't just a theoretical exercise, but someone who was helping me orient to that time and time again, as I'm experiencing pleasure. Mm -hmm. And then when I wanted to learn how to vocalize and ask for what I wanted or to feel desire, like there was a part in the work where he showed his desire of me instead of keeping it contained um, so that I could experience that and start to feel on a body level that yes, someone actually is desiring me, Mm. which was something that I did not believe was actually possible. Mm. And it was a bit of a mindfuck for a while because I also knew I was paying him. And so we had countless conversations where I'd be like, but I'm paying you. How do I really like trust? And he would talk me through it. And then I'd be like, and I would reflect later and realize there is nothing about him that seems false or inauthentic, Hmm. including in those moments of desire. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's just amazing to me. You and I connected over the fact that, our stories are so similar. Like the yeah. details are mm-hmm. different. Sure. But but that we both had this real complete disconnection from our sexuality. We believed we were undesirable. We believed that we were ugly. Yeah. And our circumstances, based on how we were interpreting them, but our mm-hmm. circumstances seem to be bearing that out. And then we go into therapy. Mm-hmm. And we have this experience of doing some really deep work in therapy, but having the recognition at some point that if I could talk my way out of this, I would have have by now. This is just a thing that that requires something other than talk, but what the fuck do I do with that? And then we ultimately ended up working with a sex worker. Um, Mine was not an ongoing relationship. Mine was a one-time thing where I had a, a, a long... Um, session with this woman while I was traveling um, that opened the door to me recognizing that it was okay to explore in other ways. But it's right. just fascinating to me that our stories track each other so closely. So closely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So, yeah. So, um, so let's talk about where you are today. So you did that work. Mm-hmm. Um where are you with your sexuality today? So that work consisted of almost five months of really intensive work. Uh, after a few sessions, I started working with him twice a week. Wow. And session was ranged from two to three and a half hours wow. each time. So it was intense mm-hmm. uh, and really profound work. And so, and where I ended up was a complete 180 from where I started. Near the end, like of my work with him, he was starting to do mentoring around dating, like being a dating coach for me and helping me kind of get into that flow 
now, like, I just, I, I'm a completely different person in terms of my relationship with my body and my sexuality. I was embarrassed to even, I didn't think I had a right to my sexuality before. I didn't think, I thought I was so unattractive and so not being desired by everyone else that I had no right to it. Mm -hmm. And um, so like everything I talked about being challenged by for the most part, I mean, I still have hiccups and things that will come up and be like challenging, but I like, I love to date. I have a ton of sex. (laughs) I'm very experimental. I know what I like. I'm really good at asking for it. I'm really comfortable responding now. And I kind of under get like, yeah, it's just, I move, I make vocal, a lot of vocalizations. Um, and I know what I like in the, like that, like in the realm or some of what I like, I'm still exploring and learning yeah. and who knows, there'll be hopefully be more, but yeah, <laughs> it's just like everything I thought about, talked about is a 180 now. And now it's time for the lowdown, the things we're dying to know, but would usually be too polite to ask any good girl. Do you enjoy giving blowjobs or oral sex? Yes. When you give a blowjob, do you swallow or not? Uh, Usually I swallow, not all the time. What's the difference? Mm, Well, one, like, I think if I want it or if I don't, like, I had an experience recently where um, I was giving someone a blowjob and I'm not that great at them. Let's be clear. (laughs) Like, I enjoy it. I think what I have going for me is enthusiasm. Uh But like, I think I'm that skilled. And I certainly don't have stamina. Uh-huh. Right. So like it's always kind of a treat. It's never the main course or it's rarely the main course. Yeah. So like I rarely bring someone off with a blowjob. It's just not like occasionally I'll like we'll do a lot of stuff and then I'll get close and then I'll go down because mm-hmm. they want me like it's a fun thing. Right. But like and this guy I went down on is just like, all right, he's two in his head. I need to get him in his body. So I like I'll go down on him for a little while. He came within three minutes and it was so unexpected huh. and, and he didn't warn me. And so I, but like, as soon as I realized it was happening, I like laid his, his dick down on his stomach. So I'm like, I didn't actually sign up for this part. <laughs> yeah. Like, there was something about it. And then other times it's like, I often, but I also like to become on like below my head. Huh. So like, sometimes like that's what I want or that's what my partner wants. Mm-hmm. And that's like really fun to do. Yeah, so that's why. What is a myth about sex that you've had to unlearn? I don't deserve it, and I'm never going to get it, and that I'm not desired in that way. Yeah. Gretchen, we've done it. <laughs> Thank- wow. Yes. So uh, <laughs> where can people find you? Oh, I am a sex and dating coach, and my website is GretchenShanks.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a Mm -hmm. pleasure. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts 
Or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at goodgirlstalk for more sex-positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs>